0: You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, well, we have uh, finally come to the third warning in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I tried my best to prepare you all for this uh, uh, last week, and probably that's why there's so many missing today. I've scared everyone away. Um, but uh, everyone knows, not everyone knows, but most people know that, that Hebrews chapter 6, it's a difficult section of Scripture. It's one of the hardest, or harshest, I would say, maybe most even terrifying sections of Scripture. Uh, it's admittedly a, a difficult passage. It has encouraged endless discussions and debates, and we're going to solve them all today. No, we're not. But... I just want to. I want what I want to do today is I want to take us to the heart of the warning, just to, just to begin with here, and it's right in the middle of chapter six, and it's found in verses four through six, and then we'll kind of go go from there. Chapter six, verse four says this: For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God. And the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. I um, studied this whole passage this week. I went through uh, the the eight verses uh, thoroughly, and by the time I was done, I realized that I had way more than one sermon. (laughs) More than we could do today, and especially today, is a communion Sunday. And so, I mean, I think there must have been some 60 slides or something in the PowerPoint original. I said, that's, you know, it's never going to happen unless you guys want to, you know, order dinner and just keep going. And so I I struggled to find a suitable stopping point, really, and to kind of cut it off at a certain point. And so I sort of really resolved, waking up this morning, that, God, I'm just going to preach it until we run out of time. And wherever we stop, we'll, we'll go on from there. Uh, but then this morning, kind of just going through it in my mind and looking through it, I, I, I did kind of find a, a suitable point to stop, and I think we'll get there. But what we probably won't get to are those, four, those three verses we just read, four to six. That's where the warning comes from, and the warning is don't fall away. And like I said, endless debates have centered on the question here of, of who the author could, could possibly be speaking to. Who is it that can fall away? After they were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Who could that be uh, to? Who is the audience? And there are four main views that I just want to present you with to begin with. The first is that some believe this to be just simply a hypothetical warning. That uh, really, in other words, there's no real danger of apostasy. That this is just a warning against a sin that really is impossible to commit. So he's merely just using this hypothetical danger to motivate them to maturity. And I, I, would, I guess I wonder why anyone would respond to a warning uh, if there was no real danger. So I find very little credibility in that one. It's not a very popular view. The, the second one, and many believe this to be the case, that this is a passage that proves once and for all that Christians can lose their salvation that these are actual Christians who are in danger of that very thing. And if they fall away, then no future forgiveness is available to them. And the early uh, Montanists and the Novationists, they used, used this passage to teach that no repentance was available to a Christian if they were to, to sin significantly after their baptism. They, they could not come back to Christ. So any Christian, then, is capable of apostasy. You're constantly in danger of losing your salvation because the perseverance, then, depends solely upon the cooperation of your free will. And the third view is this, that Christian, this is of Christians who lose their, not their salvation, lose their reward. Meaning, um, it's, it's those Christians who are maybe marginally committed, maybe they're, they're inexperienced, They're not at risk of losing salvation, but losing the heavenly rewards that we get. And so that they stress here is that it's repentance that it is impossible to come back to, not salvation. And then the fourth view is this, that this is a message to apparent believers, uh, people who look like believers, people who are perhaps good at pretending that they're believers, Uh, Maybe that group that we talked about at the beginning of of Hebrews, those intellectual believers who understand it all, believe it all, but they've made no real commitment um, uh, uh, in their own life. They have not fully embraced Christ. So they look like Christians, but they're in danger of falling away because they haven't embraced Christ. So which of these is it? Well, whichever one it is, I want to remind us that we have to approach this whole passage with the three things. One is remembering the audience. Anytime I've ever had anybody come up to me and say, hey, what about Hebrews 6? My my comment has always been, the biggest clue is the title of the book, (laughs) Hebrews. We have to remember the audience is a predominantly Jewish church. The second thing we have to remember is the broader purpose or theme of the whole book, which I've been trying to make sure I've I've been keeping as we go. So hopefully you haven't lost it. But clearly there are those in the church Jews who are thinking of turning back into Judaism or, or they're just falling back into those practices, and the author all along has been attempting to engage their hearts and their minds, and uh, he's developed certain arguments to, to really uh, prove the superiority of Christ over and above any of those Old Testament types and shadows and copies and patterns that they seem to be holding on to. For example, as we've covered so far, the angels, these high high spiritual beings, these highly created beings, uh, they're inferior to Jesus because he is the Son. He's not a created being. Uh, the message of the angels, they mediated the Old Testament law. What an amazing thing. But Jesus comes with a better message. The, the, Moses, the great deliverer of the people of, of Israel, the servant of God's house, he was called, he's inferior to Jesus. Jesus is a greater deliverer, and he is the one who built the house of which Moses is only a part. And obviously, the latest section we've been into is that Aaron and the priesthood, that's inferior to the priesthood of Christ. He is a higher order. He is of the order of Melchizedek. So why would anyone want to go back to the types and the copies and the shadows when the reality has come in Christ? That's the the, the broader theme. And then what's the immediate context? We have to keep that in mind as, as well the author would like to go on comparing the Old Testament types and and themes to to the fulfillment of Christ, and he wants to use the subject of Melchizedek, which is particularly deep. It's difficult. And contemplating uh, that topic and contemplating those in the audience who are thinking about returning to Judaism, he he realizes some of them then haven't actually learned about the Old Testament. They don't realize that those things point uh, to Christ, and so they're not really ready to understand He told us last week we looked at this that they need the first principles of the oracles of God. They need to be taught those again. And it is because they have become dull of hearing. Remember that phrase from verse 11? Dull of hearing. They have become sluggish in the ears, lazy in the ears. They were not always like that. There was a moment, there was a time where they were excited about Christianity. They came in with zeal, they embraced Christ, but they have fallen back and they have kind of become sluggish and lazy, and now they're dull of hearing. And the author is really concerned about their wavering mind. If they're thinking about leaving Christianity, that really calls into question their understanding of the basics, their understanding of those things, not the deep things. So he's even wondering, should I go on to the deep things or should I go back to the basics? Because they should have been firm on those things. And this is the primary problem that can lead to falling away. It's the spiritual laziness of some of these people. And spiritual laziness causes a regression back into childhood. That was the kind of what we looked at last week, not a maturity in, to, to adulthood this time by this time, they should have been teaching others the first principles of the oracles of God. he said, and and those are the fundamentals, the ABC's, which are found in the old Testament. The Old Testament fundamentals point to the truth or the reality in the new, but they can 't do that because he called them babes they 're spiritual infants they, they, they need milk and not solid food, and so the primary point and we really looked all at this last week. This is just a review, really. The primary point is that spiritual infancy is not a permanent state. It's not a state that we can remain in. No Christian is to remain a spiritual infant. It's expected that all Christians mature and grow into spiritual adults capable of digesting solid food. And so the author gives us the solution here in verse. Uh, one to the problem of laziness. And I just want you to read it to begin with. It says this in verse one of chapter six, therefore leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. The whole idea, the whole key to this thing is this, leaving something behind and going on towards something else. That is That is key because if they don't do that, if they don't leave those things behind, then they're in danger of falling away. So let's, let's get into this passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read all eight verses, and then we'll begin. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of a resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits." For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we just pray that you would bless our time in your word. Lord, we recognize this is a difficult passage, that there are deep things to understand. And, Lord, we need uh, spiritual understanding. We need spiritual guidance. We pray that your, your spirit would illuminate truth to us today. Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you want to Uh, to teach us. And Lord, we just pray that we would be blessed and encouraged uh, by this passage. I know it has some difficult things and some harsh uh, things, Lord, but the warnings are there for a reason, Lord, because you you don't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to salvation. And so I just pray, Lord, that, that as we go through this, your spirit of grace would be here as well, that no one would feel that they are beyond saving, for none are there. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's just jump into this here. Um, Verse 1, we're going to look at this in just a simple outline for us today, and this is probably the only point we're going to cover today because there's much to cover. But the first point is this. It's a simple instruction that's given, a simple instruction. He condemned them really for the laziness, uh, the fact that they're babes, that they haven't moved on, that they uh, need to go back to the old uh, things and that it should be moving forward. And so he says, here's the solution. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So that therefore is tying us back to that passage. Because you are a babe, because you are needing milk and not the solid food, we need to leave the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ. Now in the Greek here, the word principles that you see there in verse 1 isn't actually there. The word principles is stoichion, and it was seen in verse 12 of chapter 5. I just want you to go back and look at it. In verse 12 of chapter 5, it says this, For though by this time you you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Now, we looked at that word last uh, week. That's that word stoichion, and it means, well, it means the fundamental primary principles, the elemental uh, building blocks of of anything, of whatever uh, it is. But that word is not actually here in verse 1 in the Greek. Instead, that word first is there, the word that is in verse 12, the first principles of the oracles of God. That word is arche, and it means the beginning the origin, the first things. So it certainly makes sense in verse 12 that he's saying those first uh, first teachings, those first principles, the building blocks, the elemental, the ABC things that are found in the oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures. So that's verse 12. Now I show you that because right here in verse 1, that, like I said, that word principles isn't here in the Greek. you look at the whole phrase here, the discussions of the elementary principles, there's only actually two key words. The first is that first, arche, beginnings. The other is that word discussions. It's that word logos, doctrines, the doctrine or the teachings or the discourse. So what the author is saying is that they need to leave the original or the first or the the beginning teachings about the Christ. Do you see that? About the Messiah. Notice that he doesn't say about Jesus. He says about Christ. In fact, the author uses Jesus' name very sparingly in this book. It's a 13-chapter book, and you see his name 13 times. And when you see the name of Jesus, it's usually when he's making the case from the Old Testament, right, that that is fulfilled in the New. He is, for example, Uh, the Old Testament Son, uh, Messiah. Those names are being used in the Old Testament. He then takes it to show that's Jesus. For example, we've seen it in chapter 2, verse 9. He was made a little lower than the angels at his incarnation, and then his name is used, Jesus. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 1. Who is the apostle? Who is the high priest of our confession? That's Jesus. And then most recently, we saw it in chapter 4, verse 14. Who's the only great high priest who passed through the heavens? That's Jesus. And we're going to see it at the end of chapter 6 to make his point. Who is the one who has become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Jesus. And then really sparingly throughout the book, just once in a chapter or every other chapter until he gets to the end. And then it really picks up because he's making his point that all those Old Testament types are fulfilled in Jesus So that's the fact that he doesn't use his name, I think here helps us to understand. He is telling them to leave the original Old Testament teachings about the Christ, about the Messiah. Why? The Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. I think that's the first clue that makes me believe that the list we're about to read here does not refer to the fundamental doctrines of the New Testament. That's what a lot of people think. You start going through those things and say, oh, those are the basics of of salvation. Those are the basics of uh, the doctrines that we find in the New Testament. I'm going to look at that in a minute. That's the first clue that tells me I don't know if that's the case. The second clue comes from the command for them to leave the things that he's about to list. These are Jews. Some of them want to go back to Judaism, to remain in the types and the shadows and the copies and the the patterns of the Old Testament, to stay in the ABCs. So do you see why they cannot remain there? Can you be saved from those Old Testament things? You can't. It's a New Testament. It's a new covenant. The Old Testament law, the rituals, the ceremonies, the the festivals, the sacrifices, those things cannot save anyone. If those Jews want to be saved, they have to move beyond that, don't they? So they need to leave the first teachings about the Messiah. That word leave, leaving, it says, is ephiemi. It means three things. To send something away, to permit it to go away, or to abandon it. However you slice it, you're leaving it. It is leave. So let me just ask you a question. What New Testament fundamental doctrine are we ever commanded to leave? Is is there one? Are we ever commanded to leave any of the fundamentals of our faith? Oh, those are just for babies. Just leave that. No. Here, they're commanded to leave these things. Why? Because they're the Old Testament teachings of the Christ, the Messiah. They point to the gospel, but they are not in and of themselves the gospel. And only by leaving those beginning teachings, those fundamental teachings that point to Jesus, can you go on to perfection. Go on as Pharaoh, move move forward. Maybe your Bible says, press on. Press on to perfection, it says. Now, we looked at a similar word in chapter 5, verse 14. If you want to look at that verse, it said, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That was uh, teleos. It means perfect or mature or fully grown. This is a different word. It's very similar, but it's only used two times in the whole New Testament. It is teleates. It is the state of moral and spiritual perfection. And that's very interesting. You're not to go into perfection. Who is perfect? None of us are perfect. But do we want to be in that state of moral and spiritual perfection? How do you enter that state? Let me just show you the one other place that it's used. It's used in Colossians three fourteen. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Very known, well-known verse, right? You know that verse. When the supernatural love of Christ is poured out into the hearts of believers, we have a perfect bond of unity. It's a perfect state of unity if we operate in love. Likewise, when we leave the elementary teachings of the Old Testament to embrace the reality of the new in Christ, we have reached the state of moral and spiritual perfection. We're not perfect in of ourselves, but we're in the place of perfection because we're in Christ. Notice that it says, not laying again the foundation. Not laying the beginnings or first principles again. And what are those first principles? What are some of them? Well, he lists them here. Now, this is, I think, why people get so confused by this this passage. This, and obviously the three verses we already read, verses 4 through 6, many, like I said, look at this list and look at this as a list of, of foundations for the Christian life that this is a list of of basic uh, good doctrines of the New Testament. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that's what the writer is communicating at all. The mention of Christ and not Jesus, coupled with the command to leave these first teachings of the Christ, lead me to believe that this, this cannot be a list of New Testament fundamental doctrines. The rest of the clues, I think, come from the list itself, which I think you'll see. And they don't seem to refer to any fundamental doctrine of the New Testament. So let's read the list so you can see what we're talking about. In verse 1, it comes right after perfection. Let us go on to perfection, and now he begins the list. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, most people couple these all up together. There's six things that are listed and sort of paired up in, in groups of, of two. Repentance from dead, Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's one group. The doctrine of baptisms, of laying out of hands, that's the second. And a resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment is the third. Now, just just, just a precursory reading. We haven't talked about these at all, but just look at those lists. Look at the list. What is specifically or, or definitely or distinctly Christian about that list? Where is the mention of Jesus? Why is there no faith in Christ? Where is a salvation by grace alone? See, they, I think these are Old Testament teachings that pointed to the gospel, but they were not in themselves part of the gospel. So rather than six basics of the Christian faith, I think these are six elements of the Old Covenant. Or you can even say it this way, which is a harder way to say it. These are six things that cannot save you. <laughs> None of these things provide salvation. So we're going to take them one at a time. Notice the first one. It says repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. That was the message of the Old Testament, to repent from sin. Ezekiel 18.4 just simply said, the soul who sins shall die. If you sin, you die, that's it. And God said, so you need to turn from sin. It was a message of repentance. And that's what all the prophets kept coming to say, isn't it? Did they say turn to Christ? No, they said, turn from your idols and come back to God. You need to repent from sin and come back to him. And John the Baptist, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets, I know you find him in the New, but he's still an Old Testament prophet. He's, he's, he's pre-Christ prophet, if you want to say it that way. He, his message was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what was he doing? He was baptizing a baptism of repentance to turn people from sin. And that was the same message that Jesus took on in his early ministry. When he came, From the very beginning, in Matthew 4, 17, here's an example. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message. Turn from from sin. But think about the message. It's incomplete. It becomes complete in Jesus, but the message of repentance is incomplete. You turn away from something, that's correct. But what do you turn towards? Well, there's, there's nothing there. But in the New Testament, we find the right thing. We find that, that, that Paul and, and, the, and the, the, the apostles, they, they all began to preach a message that included repentance, but added faith toward Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul was reminding the Ephesian elders of his message. He says, I was testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That was not part of the Old Testament message. It was to turn from sin to God, but it was not to put faith in Christ. In turning to God, what did they have to do? They had to maintain works. And under the old economy, those temporary works, while they they covered your sin and they provided a temporary atonement, they did nothing to remove the offerer's guilt. You still had that. They didn't provide you for complete forgiveness of sins, you would be back there again. It was only symbolic of something else that would do that. Just peek ahead at Hebrews chapter 9. I just want to show you this in Hebrews chapter 9. Obviously, we're going to get there, but but this is what he touches on there. In Hebrews chapter nine, verse 9, verse 9, it says this, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience? It does nothing for your conscience. Nothing for that faculty that tells you you've done wrong, you've done wrong, you've done wrong. The guilt. It does nothing for those things. You needed something else. And in verse 14, well, we find it. Look at verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more shall the blood of Christ, when through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? To serve the living God. You see, repentance from dead works isn't enough. But where is that really accomplished? It's accomplished in the new. When we repent of sin and we find salvation in Christ, our conscience is even cleansed. That's the only thing that cleanses you from dead works. It's the blood of Christ. Now, let me just ask you are we to leave that teaching behind? Is that an elementary teaching of Christ that we should we should leave behind, that New Testament? Absolutely not. Or should we leave behind the Old Testament teaching of repentance from dead works? I think that's what it's pointing to. But it all goes on, doesn't it? Look at the next one. It says, go back to our passage, it says faith toward God. Not just repentance from dead works, but also of faith toward God. All of those rituals, those ceremonies, those sacrifices, the festivals, all those things were meant to to, to demonstrate your faith toward God. But this is not uh, sufficient for salvation in the New Testament. We can't have faith toward God without having faith in someone else. Do you know that? I know you know that. I know you know scriptures. It's coming to your mind right now. We have to have faith in his son, don't we? In John 14, 6, Jesus said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, The truth is evidenced even by the first apostolic gospel preaching that Peter gave, um, Pentecost in Acts 2.38. Peter said this, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent is there, but but they were to be baptized in the name of Christ. Listen, repentance, that's a wonderful truth of the Old Testament, to turn from evil. Absolutely, it's great, but it's not enough. It's not complete. It's not fulfilled because you need something else to approach God, don't you? I think we looked at that on Good Friday. What is it? Righteousness. We don't have that. But Romans 3.21, just to remind you what we looked at on Good Friday, says this, "...but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference." You don't get righteousness through the law. You don't get it through the law and prophets. They witnessed to it, but you get it through faith in Jesus. And that's why Peter said this of of Jesus in Acts 4, 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Old Testament, repentance from dead works and and faith toward God, that's, that's what that taught. Well, the New Testament teaches repentance from dead works and faith toward Jesus the only way to God. You see the difference? So those two things, I struggle to see how those are New Testament teachings, I, but they're definitely there in the old. Let's look at the next one. This is a fun one, of the doctrine of baptisms. There it is. I've already lost some of you. Some of you are thinking right now, well, there, that's certainly speaking of the new New Testament. It says baptisms, and baptisms, that's a New Testament doctrine. Well, not so fast, The word baptisms here is not baptizo, which is the word for baptisms 80 times in your New Testament. If you're going to go and look up every time baptism is used for Christian baptism, it is baptizo. It means to immerse. It means to submerge. I made little baptism pamphlets that we keep back there sometimes. I think they've all been, and I I define all all those things in there. It's baptizo. That's not the word that's used here. The word used here is baptismos. Guess what baptismos means? Ceremonial washings. Now, this is why this gets tricky, and this is why we need to know why our Bibles were rendered a certain way in terms of translations. This word is only used four times, and every single time it's used, it's rendered washings. The only place it's not is right here. Right here, it says baptisms. It clearly says that in my new King James, the doctrine of baptisms. Well, let me show you the other three places where it's rendered as washings. Twice in Mark chapter 7, here it is, verses 4 and 8. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And the verse 8, it kind of says the same thing. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers. These are ceremony things, washing out the pitchers, washing out the cups. So it's used twice there, and it's used once in Hebrews 9 of all places. Hebrews 9 verse 10, it says this, "...being concerned only with foods and drinks," Various washings, so that's ceremonial washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, clearly referring to the Old Testament things, the foods, what you should drink, eat, what you should drink, how you should wash, the fleshly ordinances. So the question is, why then is it rendered as baptisms here? Why is it not washings if it's uses washings everywhere else? It is simply this. It's the confusion over the meaning of the text. That's all it is. Many believe this to be a list of Christian doctrines. They read verses 4 to 6 and think, think that's talking about a Christian as well. And so the translators said it must be referring to Christian baptisms. And so you get baptisms here. That's how that happens. But let's see, forget that aside. Let's really see what the author had in mind, shall we? Let's look at this. Now, ceremonial washings, those are a part of a Jewish life. You always had your basin by the door. And boy, you did those washings. They happened all the time. Jesus' disciples, they were even criticized for not washing their hands before they, they ate. Now, what did that do? That was the outward cleansing that was meant to point toward their need for an inward cleansing. That's what that was for. Um, Jesus tried teaching this truth in the New Testament to a teacher of the law named Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, verse 5, he said this to him, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't understand this. And Jesus is actually shocked that Nicodemus doesn't understand this. He says, are you a teacher of Israel? And and you don't know these things? Now, why was Jesus shocked that the teacher didn't know these things? Because he's a teacher of the law. And he should have known these things because he should have read these things in the Old Testament passages, like Ezekiel 36, 25. And here's what it says. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And that passage goes on to ta- talk about the heart, that I'll take out your heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh. It talks about what is that? Regeneration, being born again, which is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus. You need to be reborn. So if that is, is being talked about in the Old Testament, shouldn't we expect to see that in the new, even beyond Jesus? Yeah, and we do. We we see it in Titus 3.5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. There we kind of find out what washing, New Testament washing is called. It's called regeneration. That's being born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a well-known verse. This is us being made new, being born again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new person creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So the New Testament washings are supernatural, they're spiritual, but they're not physical. The Old Testament washings were just meant to point to the new. The author has used baptismos, I think, purposefully, because they need to leave those outward symbolic things and come to the one who cleanses internally. Does that make sense? Well, let's go on to this one, because laying on of hands is another one. Laying on of hands is the, is the one that comes after baptisms. Is there a New Testament fundamental uh, principle uh, foundational to our faith on laying on of hands? Well, there was a New Testament apostolic practice of laying on of hands. Let me just show you a couple of places where it happens. Uh, you might remember the apostles were overworked. They couldn't um, take care of the widows. And so they said, let's find seven men of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And they picked those seven men. Those seven men are brought before the apostles. And then it says this in Acts 6, 6, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And that was simply a, a way to say, we, we sort of o- ordain them for ministry. And, and it happens similarly with, with Timothy, young Timothy. Uh, uh, Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy 4, 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. They ordained him to be a young pastor, to be a minister. Another New Testament example of laying on of hands is seen, and it's only, again, seen by the apostles. Uh, When they heard that that believers in Samaria, they they come to faith in Christ, but they had been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. So they go there, and in Acts 8, 17, it says this. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. That's it. There's there's no other teaching. There's nothing foundational about laying on of hands. I've never had anyone come up to me after service and say, so when is the laying on of hands uh, section coming up? It's never happened in all the years I've been uh, a pastor. But let me ask you this. Is there anything related to the laying on of hands in the Old Testament? Do you find anything uh, in the Old Testament You bet you do. Let me take you there. Leviticus chapter one. Now, remember I told you when we we were going into the study of Hebrews that you would really be helpful to go through Leviticus. We haven't had to do it a whole lot yet, but this is where it's really going to pay off (laughs) if you've gone through Leviticus. Laying on of hands is not a New Testament doctrine. Laying on of hands is absolutely an old one. Leviticus chapter one, you have the sacrifices being listed to you. And it begins with the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings, okay? And if you wanted to bring a, a, a burnt offering, you'd have to bring this, this offering to, to the Lord, to, to, the, to the priests. And then in verse 4, this is key. This is what it, well, I'll read verse 3 and verse 4. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, And it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So he's supposed to put his hand on the head of that offering. Now, let me just take you to uh, chapter three. That's a burnt offering. In chapter three, we have a peace offering. And in verse two, it says, he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. And then you have it again in, in verse eight. It says, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. Once again, that's for a lamb. If you wanted to offer a goat, in verse 13, he shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. If an anointed priest were to sin... In chapter four, verse four, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head. Are you seeing a pattern here? And kill the bull. All right. If the whole congregation sinned, you all sinned at one go. In verse 14, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for their sin and bring it before the tabernacle of the meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. If a ruler were to sin, and in verse 23, he was to sin, uh, he, then he would, uh, if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring an offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish, he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat. And then if the common person or a person of the, the land, a, a local, were to sin, verse 29, he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it, the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Do you see the pattern? Over and over and over again, this practice was mentioned. Under the old covenant, a person had to lay his hands on the sacrifice. That was a part. That's not a mistake. And that symbolized his identification with that animal. And it symbolized the transfer of the sin of the person to the animal. And then that animal was sacrificed, they God, not the person. And by the blood of that animal, your sin was atoned for. Now, is that an elementary teaching that we need to leave. No one's brought me a bull or a goat and said, I need to lay my hands on this. Yes, we leave that behind. In Hebrews ten four, it says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. You could do that today, but I would, I would just quote this. Well, I'll, I'll kill your goat, but you, know, you lose a pet. I mean, you know, you know, it doesn't do anything for you. But does it foreshadow a greater sacrifice. Yes, Jesus took our sins in his own body. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. See, we don't need to lay our hands on Jesus to transfer our sin to him or, or identify uh, with him. When we place our faith in Jesus, something amazing happens, says we're united with him in his death and resurrection. We're all, we already identify with With him. In Colossians chapter 2, great section of verses, verses 12 to 14, this tells us all about this. We're buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. The handwriting of requirements included the practice of laying your hands on an animal. Where has that been? It's been nailed to the cross. There's no longer needed. Now, notice that we were raised with him. Now, that helps us segue into the fifth thing, doesn't it? Going back to our passage, it says, of the resurrection of the dead. Now, honestly, there's not much in the Old Testament concerning resurrection of the dead. We see from Job that, that he understood that there would be a bodily resurrection of some sort. In Job 19, 26, he says, After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. He knew it was a bodily resurrection. We see from David that he understood that he would live beyond the grave because he believed that he would be united with his dead son. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. But other than that, it's, it's vague. Honestly, it's limited what you find in the Old Testament. Where are all the rich truths of the resurrection? Where do those come to us? They come to us in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus preached on two resurrections in John chapter 5, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. It says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You might remember Martha was, was weeping about the loss of her brother Lazarus and, and Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she responded by saying, I know that he will rise again, but you know, in the resurrection on the, on the last day, which does show you there was a basic general understanding of that resurrection. But what did Jesus say? In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Boy, we have so much in the New Testament. Paul goes into considerable detail in 1 Corinthians 15 about your new resurrection bodies. And John even tells us in the resurrection that we're going to be like Christ. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is we we learn about our spiritual bodies what what they're like they're spiritual they're they're, they're not natural as paul says and they're going to be bodies that will resemble christ and his perfectness this is this is the kind of stuff we learn in the new testament and we certainly wouldn't want to abandon any of these foundational teachings would these be anything would you want to leave these Would you classify these as elementary principles that you would want to leave? No, but we should abandon the vague and limited teachings on the resurrection from the dead in the Old Testament in favor of the amazing doctrines that we find in the new. And finally, the last one that he mentions here is and of eternal judgment. That's the sixth thing mentioned that uh, we don't want to lay the foundation of again, that we want to move past. And really, again, eternal judgment is a limited subject subject in the Old Testament. What is talked about in terms of eternal uh, judgment? I think it's only Solomon that says this, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or good or evil. We have small tidbits like, like that. But what about the New Testament? There's so much in the New Testament, isn't there? I mean, do we as Christians, will we expect any kind of eternal judgment? You imagine if we didn't have anything in that, would we not wonder all the time? But we have wonderful passages like Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We'll be judged according to our works. We learned that in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 3.14. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. And we also know that there's judgment related to unbelievers, that they will be separated at the judgment uh, of the sheep and the goats. And we learned that in Matthew twenty five says this, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And then he'll say to those on the left hand, those are the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And we certainly know what will happen because we have the book of Revelation and the great white throne judgment. Would any of those foundational truths be something that we should leave? No, but the Old Testament, the limited teachings of eternal judgment, uh, we should. And these Jews here that he's talking to, to avoid falling away, they they better grab on to the fulfillment, right, to to the fulfillment of those Old Testament types and shadows and and copies. They're only going to find that in Christ. They're only going to find it in the New Testament. And he goes on to say this in verse 3. And we'll wrap up with this. He says, this we will do if God permits. And I think this really complements everything that this has really led up to this. The readers are responsible for their dull hearing. They're responsible for their spiritual laziness. And if they fall away, they'll be responsible for that. However, at the same time, if there's a spiritual breakthrough, if they if they break through and, and grab onto these things, anchor themselves to the truths of scripture and to the New Testament, if they come into Spiritual perfection, God must permit it, if God permits, he says. And and Scripture regularly teaches that there's human responsibility and divine sovereignty, and they're complementary. They they go together. And and Paul even mentioned that just in the natural course of ministry in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is is from God. It, It all comes from him. So, I do these things, but then also know that God is doing these things, and He's doing these things in me and through me. But the author here includes himself, doesn't he? Let us go on to perfection, he says. Let us do this if God permits. Why do you think he says, let us? I think that he's probably a Jew himself, that, that he has moved forward, that the Jews should move forward. We cannot remain here on these first principles of the oracles of God. If we hope to come into a state, of spiritual perfection and moral perfection, we've got to leave behind the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ. They have advantages, yeah, they do, and we'll look at those next week, but if they fall away after having received those advantages, there's no hope of repentance. And in two weeks, we're going to continue on into that warning itself, but I really wanted to set up here that I personally find no support that these are New Testament teachings, that he's talking to uh, Christians about leaving the foundationals of the New Testament. None of those things would I want to leave. Those things are fundamental truths we hold on to. We're anchored to those uh, those things. We must hold on to those things. The resurrection for the dead, that's that's our hope. And Hebrews itself will say that's the anchor of the soul. I would not want to leave any of those things behind and, and, and go to something else. What would I go on to? But the Old Testament types, we absolutely want to leave those things and come into the new. And I think this can apply in many ways for people that have not pursued just any kind of understanding of the of the truths of Scripture. Maybe maybe sit here week after week and hear these things, and and maybe it kind of goes in one ear and goes out the other. If the same message comes to comes to you as well, that you cannot remain in a state of a a spiritual infancy, as it were, that that you kind of just maybe are sort of sanctified by just just being in the room, you know? Uh, And we'll look at that as well next week. Your faith must be yours, and it must be in Christ, and it must be in Christ alone, and not in any of these other things. We are not found righteous in the New Testament by coming to church. We're not found righteous even by being baptized. That's so work. We're not found righteous by giving and tithing a certain amount or, or serving in the church. We're not found righteous by any of those things at all. We only find it in Christ and in Him alone. And as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion together, I just wanted to kind of scoot into this subject because I think it's important. You know, we often go through the, the First Corinthians passage there the, about communion and Paul talks about examining our hearts so that we don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner. But in, in 2 Corinthians 13, I just, I just want to draw your attention to it really quickly here. Paul also says that there is something that we should examine our hearts uh, about, and it's even more important. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, he says this, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified. And that word disqualified is the same word in our passage, and we'll look at it next week at the very end of of verse 8 that says that those people were rejected. He says you need to examine yourselves. You need to test yourselves. And what it means is this is that ultimately people could go a lifetime sitting in a chair in a church and 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 possibly pull it off. Nobody really knows that they're not really bona fide believers. Easy to do, a whole lifetime. He says, instead of having others examine you, you should examine yourself. You're going to be the best judge of your own heart. You're going to be the one that can go, do I really believe in Christ? Do I really trust in him for salvation? Do I even care? Do I just like being around you know, Christians, or do I feel I just like the fellowship, or do I just like the music, or whatever it is. People are attracted to all kinds of things. He says, Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Do you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? How can we know that Jesus is in us? In Philippians chapter three, I think Paul gives a really good example of that. Philippians chapter three. You no, know, Paul. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He, he considered himself to be the chief of sinners. If it was anybody who wasn't worthy of salvation, he saw that as himself. And certainly none of us are worthy. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is telling those Jews to forget the things that are behind, forget those, those things that you knew. We're calling you to press on now toward Christ to take hold of, of him. And communion is such a sweet opportunity to do that, isn't it? It's where we can eat and drink together and the elements represent and symbolize the body and blood of of Christ and what he did for for us. And while it is meant for believers because it it is us fellowshipping with him and with one another in this, an unbeliever would not be excluded if they were to today. Bow the knee give their life to Christ. There's no better time than now. Today is the day of salvation. Hebrews has been pressing toward that this whole time. You can sense the urgency in his message, can you not? Don't neglect salvation. It's today. While it's still today, because when tomorrow comes, it just might be too late. If you're in those past things and they're holding you back, leave them. Go forward. Go to maturity. Go to perfection. And that's ultimately found in Christ. We are in a, in a, positionally in a place of righteousness, in a place of moral and spiritual perfection. Not that I am perfect in him, uh, myself, but in Christ, we are seen as such. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. So as we take of the bread and take of the cup today, reflect on those things. What a magnificent Savior we have, what he has done for us. We have been baptized with him into his death and will be raised like him as well. And when we see him, mm-hmm. mm, We're going to be like Him. Amen?